You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first Perch Pod episode of 2022. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast today for the second time is Max Suchko. Um, Max wears a number of different hats. Uh, but he's primarily director at the Institute for International Studies at McGimo University. Um, really pleased to have Max on. He was an obvious choice to have on considering the level of hostility and tensions. I hate that word tensions, but no better word for it right now. Between the United States and Russia over the ongoing security situation in Ukraine, of course, NATO and Europe in there as well. Um, I went into this conversation thinking that uh, Russia was mainly looking to secure political concessions and that there wasn't a real threat of conflict between um, or a real threat of Russia invading Ukraine as it's being portrayed in the Western media. Uh, I came out of this conversation a little bit more chastened. Um, I still don't think that's the most likely scenario and it still seems pretty clear that Russia's military buildup um, near the Ukrainian border is about securing certain political concessions. Uh, but it seems that um, Russia is more serious about this than I thought. And I was particularly struck by Max talking about um, analytical circles, even in Moscow, being a little bit surprised at how far Russia has gone. Um, so it's a wonderful conversation. Max was very generous with his time and his perspective, and we super appreciate him coming on. Uh, listeners, I always say, um, you know, it's important, I think, to put aside what you've read or what your biases are and just listen to Max and what he is saying about the Russian perspective. That's why it's super valuable to have someone like him on because you actually get a sense of what they're thinking there. Whether you agree with it or not, you can go argue about that with your friends over a beer, but here's an actual perspective that you can learn something from. Uh, Other than that, folks, um, thanks for listening to the podcast. Please rate and review us. Check us out at perchperspectives.com if you want to hear more about us or uh, want to have more information about our services. You can also always write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. Cheers, stay safe. Uh, wear your masks, get boosted, take vaccines, do whatever you need to to take care of yourselves. Hopefully 2022 is the year that maybe we say goodbye to Omicron, knock on wood. Um, so cheers. We'll see you out there. And I'm sorry, just one more programming note. We recorded this on Tuesday, January 4th. Um, a lot could happen this week, um, but we intentionally want to get this out before the big um, U.S.-Russia security summits and the Russia-NATO summits that are coming up next week. So, but if anything happens after January fourth, it's not accounted for in this podcast. So, okay, cheers. All right, Max, thank you for uh, making the time to come on the show. The the listeners won't know that it took us about thirty minutes to figure out our technical difficulties, <laughs> so that I could actually hear the words that you were saying. And I honestly can't imagine a better metaphor for the U.S.-Russia relationship. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, and I think it indeed is interesting that uh, we've had this issue <laughs> in the run up to talking about US Russia relations. I agree. That's a, a very bitter metaphor. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's dive straight in with the tough question and then we can sort of, you know, take it apart and analyze it and talk about it from different views. Um, here in the United States, uh, you know, everybody, and I would say in the Western media in general, everyone is very concerned that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Um, you know, the Guardian just this morning's headline, it's January 4th, the recording says Russia very likely to invade Ukraine without enormous sanctions. I don't know what that means. But can we just start off from your point of view in Russia? Is, is Russia about to invade Ukraine? Is this all much ado about nothing? Or is there something 
really percolating here and that Russia is actually upset about something and is willing to do something if it doesn't get certain concessions? Well, thank you uh, for, for asking this question. I think it, it indeed is important and, and, and requires some explanation on uh, at least as, 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 as I, I can interpret it uh, sitting in Moscow. First of all, I think it's not about Ukraine, first and foremost. Mm. Uh, U.S.-Russia relations may no longer be central to the world politics the way they used to be during the Cold War, but when it comes to strategic stability and security in Europe and Eurasia, uh, you know, I think uh, relations between Washington and Moscow are still key. Uh, so Putin demands to the United States and NATO that followed with the proposals on the Russian side to provide Russia with quote-unquote security guarantees have caught many, including in Moscow, by surprise. So actually, while you say, you know, invading or not invading Ukraine is a major story in the U.S., uh, the Russia's demands slash proposals slash ultimatum are the the major story here here in Moscow. Yeah. So uh, the, 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 the reason I bring this up is I think that Ukraine's story is actually one of the two components to a bigger uh, picture uh, issue that's uh, been on, on rolling out ever ever since uh, Russia's military build up near Ukraine. So this, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we, if we agree to call it an ultimatum uh, or the proposals or demands uh, that Putin had for for uh, Biden and uh, other uh, NATO members breaks into two closely intertwined subject matters, as I said. Mm-hmm. One is Kremlin's desired role for the United States in the European security order. And second is the Russia's next steps vis-a-vis Ukraine. So Moscow is likely to make decisions regarding the second track uh, meaning in Ukraine, depending on the progress on the first one, uh, you know, the talks with the United States that are about to start in Geneva uh, next next week. So invading Ukraine was and still is, uh, in my view, not the first option to coerce the United States to talks, but the threat of invasion uh, serves the incentives for Washington to take this issue seriously. So, you know, I per, I personally would interpret this whole story about, you know, the Russian buildup in, uh, you know, uh, expected or anticipated invasion to Ukraine uh, is either a way to coerce the United States to talks on bigger issue. Or secondly, uh, if the talks with Americans fail to deliver satisfactory results for Moscow, the Russian military and political leadership has talked numerous times about the quote-unquote military and military technical response uh, that may indeed directly concern Ukraine, although possibly will not be limited to Ukraine, since the Russian ambassador to the United States also promised something to imp- that Russia, if you know the U.S. and, and Western allies deny Russian proposals. Russia promised to embark on the course of, quote-unquote, creating vulnerabilities for Western countries should Russian proposals be rejected. Uh, so if you ask me, I think the decision to, let's, let's put it this, to do something to Ukraine it has not been made. But if I was to say whether Russia would be invading Ukraine per se, I would say no, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah. to invade, you know, in, in terms of, you know, kind of 20, 19th century uh, war styles with tanks and all that stuff. 
So I personally look at the military buildup as a coercive measure to talks with Westerners and to scare Kiev to continue their military offensive on Donbass. Yeah, that's a disconcerting answer for me because <laughs> coercive measures only work if the threat is real. So even if it's mm-hmm. not the first option or even the second or third option, the fact that it's an option um, mm-hmm. is a little uncomfortable. But so you said something about how you know this is about the broader um, U.S.-Russia relationship, and I think that's right. But I wanted to drill down a little bit in what you said about how it's not necessarily about Ukraine, but it's about um, the role that the U.S. is going to play in mm-hmm. Europe from a security perspective. What does Russia want? What role does Russia want the U.S. to play there? Because I'm not exactly clear what role, and maybe it's just not doing what it currently is, but like, how would you articulate what Russia's trying to get to there? You know, I think personally, uh, the biggest issue that Russia has uh, vis-a-vis the United States at this point is that Russia is not entirely sure what exactly it wants from the United States. So your question actually <laughs> hits, <laughs> hits the nail here. Uh, let me uh, get back to that question. To, to, to that, to that uh, question. But before uh, answer briefly uh, something on, on on Ukraine that I forgot to add, uh, I agree, and I can totally understand that that you know the, the the very idea that Russia may be considering some type of military offensive uh, to Ukraine may be uncomfortable uh, to uh, Western. Uh, countries and, and, and individuals and policymakers. But uh, it's also very interesting that the Russian leadership has talked o- over the past few days about, quote-unquote, active military development of Ukraine, meaning by that uh, the alleged or perceived American build-up of Ukraine's military potential, uh, what the Russian FSB and other intelligence services see as penetration of American intelligence structures into key branches of Ukrainian government, development of America's own military infrastructure on Ukrainian territory. So that all of that stuff is deeply troubling and unsettling for uh, the Russian policymakers. So, uh, you know, considering some type of military response to, 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 to Ukraine is actually meant to be uncomfortable for Western policymakers. Uh, as to the bigger uh, p- picture things to, to the United States, I think, uh, you know, if you look at these proposals, uh, at the first side, they look bizarre, really. I mean, and it's, it's, it's only logical that the knee-jerk reaction to Russian proposals in Western policymaking circles was kind of to table reject them, right? <laughs> Deny any rationality to them. That makes sense because uh, it's a dozens of demands without a hint of Russia's own concessions. Some of the proposals concern fundamental issues that originate in like late 1980s and early 1990s. Others focus on modern day issues where the interests of the parties have long seemed irreconcilable. So it doesn't really make sense to raise all of that at once, hoping that it could be settled uh, over a threat of uh, you know invading Ukraine. That said, however, I think uh, the the reason uh, Putin decided to put it on the table has to do with the two things. One is uh, Russia's interpretation of how the United States see Russia now. And secondly, Russia's assessment of top foreign policy priorities of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So on the first account, 
while the United States does not see Russia as a peer competitor on a global scale, uh, perhaps much to the despondency of the Kremlin, uh, American military and intelligence community uh, take Russia as a serious adversary, especially in nuclear and precision weapons, cyber domain, space capabilities. So for the Biden administration, uh, the thinking in Moscow goes, strategic stability is probably the only area that truly concerns Washington in relation to Moscow, because this is a, a domain where Russia maintains near peer capabilities and poses an existential threat to the United States. So based on these assumptions, Putin's proposal hinged any further progress on these issues, uh, on strategic stability, kind of in a broader sense, to Russia's own security guarantees in Europe. But in a, in, in, in a way, you know, Biden at one point framed his Russia policies like we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So by doing what Putin did, makes this policy a little more difficult to uh, implement in Russia's view, of course. Right, like you, you, you can walk into a gun. Like you also have to take into account our, our own kind of security concerns. That's that's one thing. The second thing is that Moscow appears to believe that the Biden administration is better placed for a serious deal making at the moment. Also, to much of the surprise of many in policymakers in in in, in Moscow, because many expected a lot, a lot of bad things from the Biden administration, <laughs> and you know more sanctions and stuff. But this consideration it, it happens because there is an increasing domestic demand as Russian seat in the United States for a more kind of restrained foreign policy. And then Biden team also promised more uh, reliance on diplomacy. But most importantly, Moscow is skeptical that President Biden is going to run for a second term. Hmm. And that means he will have to care more about his political legacy. And Russia's assessment is that it's two things. Uh, one is kind of his campaign uh, slogan, building back better. And second is getting America in shape for the century's most important showdown with China. So a massive protracted conflict with Russia that may also, you know, tie America's hands in other region, region, regional conflicts would perhaps distract resources and impede the achievement of both goals. So Russia's idea is, you know, if the Americans don't want that to happen, they, they, they must have an incentive uh, to negotiate some of the things that Russia has not been comfortable with uh, over the past like 30 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that works together. By the way, I think Biden is running for a second term. So whoever's telling him <laughs> that he's not, uh, you, should, you should correct them. Um, yeah. But well, I, I'm, I think I'm even more uncomfortable with the idea though that you're not, that Russia is still figuring out exactly what it wants than I am with the coercive measures. But uh -huh. Um, a, another question, and it's tied to what you just said, because you talked about, you know, an active military, a U.S. active military buildup of Ukraine's forces, penetration of U.S. intelligence in Ukraine, U.S. military infrastructure. Um, I, I guess some of that's there. I mean, I know the Trump administration sold them some anti-tank missiles that people were very mm -hmm. upset about. But what doesn't make sense to me is the timing of this whole thing, because all of these issues like the expansion of NATO and U.S. military infrastructure, mm -hmm. not in Ukraine, but let's say in Eastern Europe, has been there, has been building up for a while. Um, yeah. The timing of this seems a little bit strange. It's not that any of Russia's demands or requests don't make sense to me. They make sense because it's what Russia has been talking about for years. Mm -hmm. But the sudden urgency and the flip in the narrative or the flip in the tone of, of the 
ultimatum or proposal, whatever euphemism you want to use there, mm -hmm. um, has certainly taken me off guard. So is there something specific that happened in Ukraine that Russia's scared about that it doesn't like? Or is it really more of that target of opportunity? To, to just finish that thought, I mean, it seems to me, as you said, you know, a military operation against Ukraine is completely self-defeating for Russia. You're not going to take over Ukraine. Ukraine's not going to mm -hmm. like you. You've got an incredibly weak leader who's a, literally a stand-up comic as the president of yeah. Ukraine. Like, it, it, it doesn't seem to me like you actually get anything out of doing that. So help me think about the timing. Is there something concrete that's happened, or is it just Russia sees an opportunity, as you said, because Biden is distracted and wants to focus on China? Well, I think it's a mixture of both, even though I'm not entirely sure I can answer uh, your question, because the timing caught everyone, like I said, on guard, even here in Moscow. Mm. People were asking what's really new that happens over the past few months that made Moscow to demand uh, a bunch of things so quickly, you know, on, in, in such a comprehensive manner and, and threat, threaten a war. If that doesn't fly, so all of the all of all of that are really legitimate questions. Uh, my well, also very importantly, uh, the demands, uh, and I have looked at at, the, at some of the past rhetoric, as you said, Russia has been talking about that for a long while. So obviously, the enlargement of NATO has been an irritant for Moscow for a long time and, and, and triggered noise from Russia every time a new wave of enlargement eastward happened. But possibility of Ukraine and Georgia's accession to NATO uh, has been set as the red line long time ago. So if, if to your question what exactly Moscow wants, uh, it wants, uh, quote unquote, neutrality of Ukraine and Georgia or say they, 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 they're not accepted to NATO, right? Even, even uh, you know, this, the, there's considerations that if the Europeans want embrace them somehow into the uh, Eastern policy neighborhood kind of thing, that's fine, but no military infrastructure of NATO in the United States on their territories that may threaten Russia's security. So that's a red line. So I think Putin's speech in Munich uh, that is uh, notorious back in 2007, symbolically ended the era of Russia's West relations of 1990s. Mm -hmm. So it first came as the first notable call to set the framework for quote-unquote security guarantees for Russia. At the time, you know, Russia was agitated by what it called color revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia, and as well as the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and Putin's complaint about what he then called unilateral dominance of the United States in international relations was an outcry, in my view, of failed attempts to befriend the U.S. under George W. Bush, even though they seem to have pretty good personal chemistry. So instead, his remarks were seen as manifestation of Russia's own kind of revisionist ambitions. And after that call, you know, a year after that, the five-day war with Georgia in the August of 2008 happened. And although, you know, Moscow believes it was triggered by then-President Mikhail Saakashvili adventurous offensive in South Ossetia, uh, in Russia's view, the, it happened as an implication of greater American and European failure to take those red lines seriously. And the second time, the second call for this kind of security guarantee has happened in 2012. So the second iteration of the Russian call uh, came in amidst another turbulent inter international environment, you know, the Arab Spring, NATO's intervention in Libya, 
the Obama administration's support for the Volotnia protests in Russia. And that made Putin publicly raise the issue of Russia's security guarantees in one of the articles he penned at the time as an aspiring presidential candidate. You know, so I really encourage everyone who reads Russian to look into that article. It was titled, Got to be Strong Security Guarantees for Russia. So the, pretty much uh, it appeared in the Rossiyska Gazeta, you know, the, the main Russian newspaper. So he argued at the time that Russia's own security can be guaranteed only by means of, quote, developing military potential in the framework of containment strategy and at the level of defense sufficiency. So his major thesis there was we, meaning Russia, must not lead anyone into temptation with our weakness. So he thought it was a strong enough warning that the West didn't listen to and supported the Maidan revolution in Ukraine a year and a half after that in 2014. And, you know, and then the takeover of Crimea became another milestone in Russia-West relations and officially ended the era of Obama's reset policy with Russia. So current ultimatum is in a way a third attempt to coerce the United States and Europeans to look carefully to those red lines, you know, and not allow, uh, not uh, accept Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Uh, and then, you know, that perhaps is kind of an immediate and most concerning impression issue for, for Moscow. But then after that come a bunch of other things, you know, discussing modalities of the entire European security architecture. That's perhaps a little hard to, uh, <laughs> to sell. Yes, and we don't want to put the, the listeners to sleep. And we should also say, I mean, Russia and the U.S. were part of a group of countries that just signed or just put out this joint, uh, you know, nuclear pl- proliferation mm-hmm. or non-nuclear pl- pr- proliferation document, which, you know, that's good. But um, the the thing about Georgia and Ukraine, and it, it seems to me that it's it's sort of a new red line in the sense that with Georgia and Ukraine before, and, and this gets to our difficulties recording at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast and the mutual unintelligibility <laughs> of communication, uh, Georgia and Ukraine are not going to join NATO. It's not on the books. NATO doesn't want it. I mean, I'm sure Georgia and Ukraine would love it, but the U.S. doesn't want it. Europe doesn't want it, whatever. But there has to be enough st- strategic ambiguity where the U.S. doesn't have to say that out loud. And Europe doesn't have to say that and guarantee that because Moscow asked for it. The moment that you're asking for NATO or for the U.S. to say, yes, Russia, because we respect you, um, we will not allow these countries into NATO. That's something different. Um, if we use the Taiwan metaphor, it would be like China saying, hey, we're throwing out the strategic ambiguity here. Either you're going to say that this is ours or things are going to get bad. And it seems to me, I mean, that's sort of a semantic point, but mm-hmm. it seems like it's it's pushing a little bit further. And it leads me to this next question, because I don't know that I know the answer and I'm curious about it from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, what, in your opinion or from your you know analyst position, is the greatest threat to Russia geopolitically right now? Oh, it's a great point. Uh, great question. Uh, you know, look uh, again to to as I'm trying to to fig- figure figure this out. Uh, the NATO, uh, Georgia, and Ukraine in NATO, uh, and I think one reason that Moscow is asking for what you're talking about to prove accurate is they say, well, look if. Ukraine and and Georgia is not on the table, uh, why don't you denounce the Bucharest uh, statement that it's not on the table because it said, you know, one day they will join. Even it sounds vague, but it's still there. So obviously no one's going to denounce those statements, right? 
so that would be used as as a pretext to continue you know taking some countermeasures as, as Russia see it and then trying to prevent uh, Ukraine and Georgia from, from, from joining NATO. So since, since the Bucharest summit said that, that they want, they will become members of NATO, that means, you know, there is a concern, a uh, security concern for, for Russia. Secondly, I think it's always a, a problem of uh, what comes first, whether it's U.S. intent to drag Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, or it's Ukrainians and Georgians, what the Russians see, manipulating the Russia threat to, to, to sell their importance to Western countries. And there is no consensus on, on in, in, in Moscow on what comes first, because there are you know, powerful groups in the decision-making that say it's the US driving the process because the US wants to contain Russia. Others say, no, actually, it's actually you know, Ukraine and Georgia that are a kind of uh, what do you say, wag the tail uh, in a way. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, but also you know when the Russian, I was part of one delegation, expert delegation that visited NATO's headquarters. Uh, I think back in 2018, and one of the members of the Russian delegation asked the question whether you know Georgia's accession is still on the table, and some of the NATO, I mean. I wouldn't say top officials, but mid-level bureaucrats, they said yes, and we're actually considering uh, what they sold, the, the scenario of uh, France, uh, you know, that was in NATO when it still kind of had Algeria as its uh, colony. So, you know, the, the security guarantees would spend to France, but not to Algeria. So there was some kind of the, he was saying that lawyers we're working around this issue to see whether it could be implemented towards Georgia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia, you know, so that if Georgia is in NATO, it's, you know, its territory outside South Ossetia and Abkhazia are covered by security guarantees, and then South Ossetia and Abkhazia are not covered. So that response, you can imagine, uh, made a lot of news in Moscow then. Mm -hmm. uh, people were saying, well, look, actually, they are considering, and, and they're just thinking of how to do it legally. So, uh, you know, if you look at it from, 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 from the Russian angle, there, there are a bunch of things that actually, even though I, I, I agree in, to what, what you are saying, but it doesn't, it's hard to sell this point through all the levels of Russian policymaking. The biggest threat, perhaps, to your question, uh, I would say right now, uh, it's the American, quote-unquote, military infrastructure close to Russian borders. And I think the urgency is actually exactly in and in, in, in what i i said that the russian uh, leadership talking about uh, as far as ukraine is concerned but also all the pressure on uh, lukashenko's belarus mm -hmm. create uh this kind of perception of russia being as a besieged castle you know on the west pushing putin's phrase that russia is pushed against the wall is not a metaphor but a real reflection of his and his body's vision of the current situation yeah, uh, and we can get into Lukashenko if you want to. Um, I don't want to, to be yeah, honest. <laughs> good, I don't want to either. What a, what a mess. Um, it's funny, though. Uh, I mean, to the point about uh, Ukraine and Georgia, I don't know, and maybe maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe there is some momentum for that gaining weight, even at a mid-level that I'm unaware of, and Russia saw something that made it uncomfortable. When I think, though, about Ukraine and 
and Georgia in in NATO. Um, I think of this old joke about uh, you know, uh, an old 17th century European town and they need to pay someone to blow the bugle or the trumpet every morning um, until, um, you know, Jesus returns mm. uh, for a second time. And they keep on going through these people and they can't find someone to reliably blow the trumpet until one day this Jew shows up and says, I'll, I'll take the job. That's fine. And so every day the Jew twice a day goes around the city blowing the trumpet until Jesus is supposed to return the second time. And you know, at the end of the week, he goes to his synagogue and they all ask him, what, why are you doing this? Why are you working for, for the Christians yeah. and blowing this trumpet until Jesus comes back for a second time? And the Jew says, oh, it's steady living. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yes, like it, we'll, yeah. we'll keep talking about Ukraine and yeah. Georgia as yeah. part of NATO in a hundred years time. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. all good. But, but I get your point. It's, it's not something that you can bank on if you're the Russian population, but um, to, to just zero in on your answer to that question about the greatest um, threat to Russia geopolitically being U.S. military infrastructure close to their borders, you sort of raised this obliquely in terms of the U.S., so I'll put it to you in terms of Russia. China doesn't worry you at all? I mean, it seems like you're getting awfully buddy-buddy with China, which is much closer, uh, which has revisionist aims of its own, and which Russia took some territory from them back in the day in the 19th, 20th century um, that I'm sure China at one point, if it got very strong, would like to have back. So, but it seems like Russia takes a much different approach with China, much friendlier, much more accommodating. We'll cooperate. We'll do this, that, and the other thing. Um, is that just because ideologically it's easier, because it's easier to deal with Xi? Does Russia not see China as a threat? Is it so much of a threat that it feels it has to be friendly? Talk to me about China. Well, it does concern me personally, and I asked that question on several occasions to some of the Russian policymakers, and, uh, and I asked that question directly to one of the uh, military guys uh, three or two years ago, hmm. uh, and he, he, he told me, uh, and I'm quoting almost literally here, he said, we're not concerned until we are superior in nuclear capabilities meaning that you know as long as as russia has dominance in nuclear capabilities over china china is not uh considered a dangerous adversary hmm. or you know an actor that can do some serious harm uh now the philosophy that i think has been channeled a, through different levels of, of the Russian government as far as China is concerned is that you know Russia and China may not always be together but it's important that they're never against one another uh, so you know there are obviously divergences in, 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 in visions and uh, you know China has a bunch of uh, issues with states that Russia considers important for its own kind of visions of the quote-unquote multipolar world such as india mm -hmm. uh, for instance uh, but uh, until now it is a seen as a lesser evil than the us but i wouldn't say it's us is considered an evil per se that's that's actually a big point that i have with with the kind of this mainstream thought that russia seeks to to undermine american prestige and power across the world it does seek to de-americanize international relations system and china is seen as a kind of natural ally in that but it also is not against us in principle just because you know it doesn't like us at some point because putin on, on a number of occasions has shown 
his interest in deal making with us it is just that by now he's you know he's in such a position and such a perception that uh, putin you know by default can be to up to no good so nobody <laughs> wants to deal with him um but um I think there is still still space for for U.S. Uh, and, and and Russia to, uh, you know, to work on on, on some issues of uh, mutual concern together. It's just I think that over the past few years, and I think it started with with the Trump administration because of the all of this you know Russia collusion and Russia interference stories uh, that some of the American policies towards Russia were really pushing it into the hands of China and Russia didn't really resist that all that much. I don't think it got a lot in return. Uh, and actually every instance of US Russia summit or high level contact worries the Chinese because mm -hmm. they're watching that carefully and make sure that Russia doesn't <laughs> pivot back to the West uh, uh, as if it pivoted to the East in the first place. But um, yeah, I think it's 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 for now it's a, a relationship that continues to develop uh, at some kind of personal level, I would say, Putin and and she. Uh, but I don't really see. And there is obviously, you know, all the good incentives. Don't get me wrong; I, I'm not against. Uh, you know, good relation with China, if only because of the large land border and of the growing importance of China, of course. Mm -hmm. It's just that I do think uh, that many, on many issues and many levels, uh, Russia may be uh, falling under more influence of China. Uh, and ultimately, I think what also is kind of in the cards uh, right now, that if the United States does not consider these proposals uh, by Putin seriously, Russia will probably decide to augment its force multiplier role for China and kind of drag it to the European theater to the, you know, in a similar fashion that the Americans are dragging Europeans to the Indo-Pacific theater. In that sense, Putin made interesting, uh, this kind of small step in that direction by virtually a inviting China's sea to tacitly support Russia's ultimatum vis-a-vis -vis NATO and US. China wouldn't jump to Russia's support, obviously, but it displeased with how the Americans are bringing, you know, the Europeans to its containment, to China containment agenda in the, in the Pacific. So Beijing would probably be happy to see the Europeans and Americans for that matter, once again, kind of flounder with the Russians in the European theater. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure Russia can drag China anywhere any more than the U.S. can drag <laughs> the Europeans anywhere anymore. Uh, I, th I think that's part of the multipolar world that we're in. Mm. Um, let's put a pin in that for a second, though, and spend, before I let you go, just a couple minutes um, on <laughs> your and my favorite hobby horse, which seems less important with each passing day, which is the Middle East. Um, <laughs> you know, And you were talking about shared interests between Russia and the U.S. I've been saying for years now uh, that there are shared interests between Russia and the U.S. and the Middle East, and they don't seem to be able to get on the same page ever. Um, 
how's Russia feeling about the Middle East in general? Um, Turkey seems, is Turkey a problem? Is Tur I saw that Putin was throwing some shade at Erdogan's uh, economic policies <laughs> the other day. Uh, we've got the Iran nuclear deal cooking. I expect it'll eventually get signed, but just kind of curious where Russia's looking at, at that part of the world now or whether, like for the United States, it's become less important and it's more about, you know, the European security theater, the Indo-Pacific security theater, even sub-Saharan Africa. Well, I think in a way, the Middle East moment in the Russian foreign policy is gone. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, we hear less about that. So it's kind of back to the shelves of the Orientalists who study the region professionally. <laughs> and, you know, and will not hear about it until, uh, God forbid, ISIS 2.0 <laughs> Yeah. raises its head perhaps in, in some in some years it will uh so the you know the threats driven approach that russia has as executed uh, ever since the beginning of its campaign in syria has given way to opportunities based approach uh, where russia is trying to monetize and and capitalize on its image of a kind of serious deal maker and uh, exploit american uh, failures here and there but I don't think it, it, it could get much out of uh, out of these muddy waters now, uh, more than, than, than it got already. Uh, you know, the, it does, you know, with Turkey, it's always interesting. Indeed, Putin uh, kind of made some snark remarks about his Erdogan's uh, fiscal policies, but also Erdogan was the first foreign leader he called in the new year. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, discussed a bunch of issues, including kind of interesting that Turkey uh, proposed itself to, to be a mediator between Russia and the West <laughs> to deliver the Russian proposals to the Americans, which is right. kind of interesting. Uh, what happened the, the, the next day, the Russians bombed Idlib uh, and <laughs> some of the <laughs> Turkey allied positions <laughs> in return. But so, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think the Iran deal is one thing where, you know, Russia and America could cooperate, but what happens even when it's reached, you know, probably everyone would go to their room, uh, cook their own policies vis-a-vis -vis Iran, not much cooperation would be expected. Uh, America's presence in Syria would still be a pain in the neck for the Russians. Uh, as long as Americans are there, Assad will not get a lot of uh, oil-rich lands in Trans-Euphrates, and that puts more financial pressure on the Russians to support the Syrian government. Mm -hmm. um, tons of things, objectively, for Russia and America to cooperate as far as the Middle East is concerned, especially, you know, counterinsurgency and radical Islamization and all that stuff, but I don't, unfortunately, see it materializing in any way anytime soon. Yeah, I think I have to take an L on that one. Um, last, last sort of question I wanted to pose to you and to bring it full circle to where we were before. Um, you know, we sort of talked about Russia and Ukraine, the U.S. from a mm -hmm. high level strategic point of view. Um, I can tell you that most Americans, um, you know, most normal Americans who aren't thinking about, you know, international affairs and geopolitics all day, um, don't think much about Ukraine or Georgia mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, they think about Georgia, the state, you know, and whether it's going to go Democrat or Republican, not about Georgia mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, and I was just wondering, you can answer this from your perspective or from what you think is sort of Russia's general, you know, popular opinion perspective. Um, but do people care in Russia 
as much about Ukraine as Putin seems to, because you know Putin put out that essay a couple of years ago about maybe it was even last year. I can't remember now with COVID. Time doesn't make any sense, but you know about how Russia and Ukraine were one people, and people are are trotting this out as as an example of how much Putin cares about Ukraine and how important it is for his legacy and for Russia's security and its you know reascendance to global power that it makes sure that Ukraine is part of Russia as it always should be. Do most Russians feel that way? Do they look at Ukraine and say, this is part of Russia, it should be part of Russia, none of this makes sense? Do they kind of throw up their arms and they don't care and they're more concerned about domestic stuff like some of the Americans I talked about? It's mm-hmm. how, how much does it actually matter in the day-to-day Russian Russians' lives? Well, I would say that most Russians are similar to most Americans in the sense that they care less about foreign policy in general. A part of that, because, you know, uh, there's been so much foreign policy on TV and all the talk shows and stuff that uh, the majority of Russians have, have been fed up with that. First it was Syria, then it was Ukraine. It's been going on since 2014. Uh, so I think there is this kind of first Syria fatigue, now the Ukraine fatigue thing. Uh, so even if you look at the Putin's uh, press, big presser uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, before the, the end of the 2021, uh, about, I think, about 60% of questions were about social policy, you know, economics, uh, social programs, that kind of stuff. Uh, and a little over 10% about foreign policy. And I think 4% of that was about Ukraine. Uh, I, as far as you know, geopolitics is concerned, I think Ukraine will and is still considered to be part of uh, of you know uh, security component for Russia. But the attitudes to it differ uh, tremendously depending on the age group you talk to. So I do believe it, it's important for Putin and and he's uh, you know people of his age. Because a lot of even my colleagues consider Ukraine as part of Russia, historically, emotionally, culturally. They think of Ukraine as the same people. Uh, one of my colleagues remarks, like, I can't think of Ukraine as a foreign country because I was, you know, and he lived in the south of Russia next to the border of Ukraine. So they would go both back and forth in the time of the Soviet Union. Younger generation, I personally look at Ukraine as a foreign country that should be dealt as as a foreign country, hmm. not as part of one uh, nation, or you know, I think it does have to do with 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 generation gap, if you want to call it this way. But also, uh, if you look at you know uh, who does Ukraine in the Russian government, it's mostly the Kremlin. Foreign Affairs Ministry has lesser of an involvement to Ukrainian affairs, which is also kind of telling uh, that because it's the Kremlin's file most of the time, it perceives Ukraine as part of an extension of domestic issues, not foreign policy per se. So it reacts very, very emotionally to any involvement on part of the Americans, the Germans or whoever else uh, on that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure any of this makes me feel much better, but um, I think we've taken uh, taken the room away from from your children's cartoon hour for long enough. So thank you so much for uh, sticking with us, Max, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks so much, Jacob. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.